Welcome to Lawali Life, the podcast. I'm Alice Law, your host and founder of Lawali Life, which is my coaching practice I've set up to help stress professionals and entrepreneurs to decrease, manage, and get rid of stress whilst improving their professional and personal performance. I take a very holistic approach to stress management, and this podcast is based purely around stress and loss and is a mixture of conversations with leaders in their fields from top CEOs, neuroscientists, authors, and other coaches and spiritual thought leaders guiding you through how they overcame their personal stress and losses and how you can overcome yours. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, which is the amazing Spencer Lodge, who is a incredible entrepreneur. He is currently ranked at number one business development and sales strategist in the Middle East. He is also voted into top 100 most influential people in the UAE, is an author, entrepreneur, has an amazing story about what it means to lose everything, including the company he once built and have it taken away from him in a Steve Jobs style-esque story and how to come back from that not only wiser, but also incredibly stronger and very humble. He now owns a management group called the Blue Sky Thinking Group, which is a multi-multi-million dollar company, amongst other things, and has his own podcast interviewing the likes of Tony Robbins and beyond. He really is a very interesting and impressive human being, and I hope you get incredible value out of his honesty and vulnerability of what it means to lose that and come back from it and build anything you want again. So Spencer, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you giving us some of your time as I know you're an extremely busy man. Spencer has started multiple businesses and trained people in sales strategy, essentially, haven't you, in motivation and coach people. It's now one of the top 100 most influential people in the UAE and is here today to talk to us about his experience. So tell us a bit about your story. How did you come to be one of the most top 100 most influential people in the UAE? It's a very British type of place, and, uh, and and I mean that in the nicest and most respectful way to the UAE. Being influential or being one of the most influential people, I, I don't. If you said to me, "Why exactly were you?" I don't know. I just somebody who has no fear of speaking my mind. I'm somebody that is not a politician nor a diplomat, and. I think that like, I see it like this out of a hundred people, there's 30 people that think I'm awesome. There's 30 people that hate my guts and there's 40 people that are just looking at a shiny piece of paper, go past in the air like that. And so when I, when I, when I understand that, then I can lean into that 30 people because they like me and I influence them quite heavily. And I think to become influential here, you don't need everybody to think you're influential. You just need the people that do. And then for those people to celebrate and promote you. It's interesting you say that because obviously judgment and fear of judgment is such a normal concept for a lot of humans. So you're obviously someone who's got over that concept of fearing being judged by others. That's why you're probably very successful. How did you personally overcome that sort of fear around judgment? It was a wine bar in London in EC3 in a street called the Minories, and I think the wine bar was called the Minories 2. I was 19 years old, and it was a Friday night. It was 6 p.m. Two of my buddies and I went for a drink after work, and she was there, and she just looked amazing. She had a brown bob and big brown eyes and you know, a petite figure, and I stared at her. I thought, how am I going to talk to her? And this was 1989, so we hadn't quite got mobile phones. We never, certainly didn't have dating apps. And 
you know, three glasses of wine later, I summed the courage up and wandered over there and asked her if I could buy her a drink. And she said, what took you so long? And I was like, yes. And <laughs> what actually happened is I said, what do you do for a living? Her name was Sarah Newton. What do you do for a living? She was a receptionist in a law firm. I was interested in what she did, why she did it. Asked her about her job, her career, her family, and you know, paid a lot of attention to what she was saying. And she said to me, what do you do? And I said, I'm a professional salesperson. And in that second, she rolled her eyes and she went, why did I have to meet a salesperson today? <laughs> um, and in that moment, I got a chip on my shoulder and it reminded me of, of all the things that people felt about salespeople that were negative. And it offended me to the core because she was a receptionist and I was a guy that was working hard and making really from, from my environment, making a lot of money, um, put in 12, 14 hour days in every day and was proud of what I did. But I realized that other people didn't like salespeople. And I then for the rest of my life, even to this very day, um, uh, fight to defend the right of salespeople because all of these, uh, uh, operations, accounts, administration, um, uh, architects, um, uh, and most other people that work in businesses wouldn't have a job if there wasn't any revenue coming through the door. And the revenue that comes through the door comes from the people that are selling the services or the products that that company manufactures or provides. And so for me, they're the backbone of industry and they need to be respected. And they, uh, salespeople, uh, go through the toughest role in any business because of the psychological highs and lows that they experience on a daily basis. And you'll go to a meeting and do business with a client and you'll be jumping in the car and punching the ceiling and get in, come on, you know, when you've made a sale or, uh, and you can go to the next meeting and get out of the meeting and the person said no, and you're literally on your knees on the floor, psychologically lost, and so you can literally do this on a daily basis. And if you can do it daily, you can do it weekly. If you do it weekly, you do it monthly. And that's what happens to probably 95% of the salespeople that exist anywhere. So for me, it was just trying, how can I create a line where it didn't zigzag all the time? It just kind of went up um, calmly. I don't mind a little bit, but not a lot. And the way that that was going to happen was by teaching people how to sell. Um, and be professional salespeople. And I think that's kind of where I've ended up, even though I've built lots of businesses. I think that, that my, my core is about being a salesperson. And I'm really proud that I am one. Yeah, that's amazing. What would you say then is one for you, obviously being a sales strategist, what is your greatest tip for people who are trying to sell that are constantly getting rejections, constantly getting no's? If you had to give them one tip, what would it be? respect that selling is a skill and you must learn the craft i think yeah it's so easy for people just to think well why aren't they buying into me but if you're not presenting it in the right way then they won't i don't understand why people think you can be good at sales if you don't learn the skills you can't be a lawyer if you don't learn it you can't be a doctor if you don't learn it you can't be in anything if you don't learn it but for some <laughs> reason in sales you can be it just because you're a person um, and you've got a personality or as my grandmother said, you've got the gift of the gap. It's just, it's a load of baloney. It's a skill. It's a, it's a craft and probably one of the few crafts and skills that you can use for the rest of your life. 
um, no matter what, you know, no matter what, I'll always be able to make money because I know how to sell. So whatever comes my way, whatever challenge I face, no matter what goes against me, I can, I can always lean back on being a salesperson and no one can ever take that away from me. Yeah, that's amazing. So talking about challenges, what is your greatest challenge or stress or loss that you've personally had to overcome and how did you do that? So I essentially built a business for 16 years and then was uh, fired from that business. And I'd secured and negotiated gardening leave for a year, um, which meant I was being paid for a year, which I thought at the time was going to be a decent thing. And I could then go and see all the people I hadn't seen over the years, spend some time with family and friends before I thought about what I did next. But I've got ants in my pants. And so within five weeks, I was bored. And within 10 weeks, I was suicidal and was ready to take my life within three months and planned my demise. So that was probably the darkest moment of my life. Um, And I think that's the thing that there's an element of Stockholm syndrome in there as well with my previous business partner and uh, chairman. So there's a, it was, that's the toughest, toughest experience I've been through. I mean, I got divorced in 2000, no, yeah, 2000 and something, 2002. That wasn't a pleasant experience, but, but I think this one impacted me the most because I'd, I'd been part of a business that had grown from 30 of us to 1,500 of us and from three countries to 70 countries. So I'd sacrificed everything for that business, sacrificed time with my children. I'd put that business first always. And it was, you know, it was part of me. I was always unrecruitable in that business because it's where, where I belonged. And then to come to the end of that journey um, was a really, really difficult, difficult time. And it still is difficult even today, which is, what seven years later how did you come back from that yourself so a couple of things number one my my dad lives in a place called Sedgefield which is near Newcastle which is an awful long way away from me down in London um and I had planned everything here so that I went back to the UK and I spent a day with my kids and then I planned to commit suicide and I have a farm out in North Essex and I got to the farm and my dad's car was parked outside the house. My dad's never at my house. And I was like, what's he doing here? And then I couldn't find him outside. So I went inside, put my key in the door, went inside the house and my dad was in the living room and I'm like, how did you get in here? And he's like, the the housekeeper gave me the key. I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, go and go, you just got off a plane, go and grab a shower. I'll make you a sandwich. And um, we go out, I've got somebody I'd like you to meet. And it was just like, I didn't get it. And so my dad had sent something and he drove me to the Priory. Um, and yeah, and I was in there for a few days. And I suppose that was the start of the healing process. The guy teaching me to understand that, you know, my children would be devastated if they lost their dad and that was too damaging for them. And so I need to take that seriously, which I did. Um, and I started to recover and then I spent a bit of time, um, at a couple of Tony Robbins events. And this, this one sentence kept resonating with me is the greatest revenge is massive success. And it just kept playing over and over in my mind and it, and I needed to get revenge. I needed to have some form of revenge in my mind to 
first of all, give me something to focus on um, and then also for me to be able to, to deal with it. And I, ha- I had to be, for the first part of it, I had to be the victim. And I, I look back on all of it now and it was all my fault and it was all my behavior that caused the problems. But at, at the time I needed that. I needed to have something, someone to blame. You, you wronged me. Let me prove you wrong type of thing. That's such a common thing, isn't it? That everyone looks outward when we should be looking inward in those kind of scenarios. What would you say then, do you believe there's a sort of stigma around getting help as a successful man for stress or loss? Were you able to, did you feel like you had to hide everything you've been through being in your position or did you, were you more open about it? Um, I hid it. Um, I had the support of Sarah, my PA, who'd been my PA for a long, unless she's 15 years now. And Danielle, one of my employees who became a business partner, again, 15 years together. And they were very strong and supportive around me. Um, but no, I hid it at first. I didn't, um, I didn't face it. It took me many years to, to go and kind of open up and be honest about it. If you were talking to me in 2013, I would be holding somebody else or something else accountable for the reason I got to that place. And so I would have handled it differently with you. And I think because I was handling it differently in real life. Yeah, that's really interesting. So would you say that was like a combination of, like you say, your own personal change and development and understanding of it, as well as perhaps mental health was not as open back then as it is now. It's becoming more of a you know, bigger movement. I don't even think we, don't even call, do we call it mental health? I don't even think we called it mental health. We, we might have called it depression, um, but I'm not sure we'd have put that, that title on it. And I don't think... I don't think you could admit to being depressed unless somebody's giving you tablets to say you're depressed and here's your antidepressant. I think that uh, you uh, you either acknowledge it and take you take the pill and take the medication, or you don't acknowledge it and you don't. And I think that I went through. I was offered medication, um, but I didn't want to take it, and so I then decided that I wasn't I wasn't depressed. I knew I was, but I kind of like it was better to be that way. I was found it really amazing that you spoke about this on a video recently for World Mental Health Day and just sort of raising awareness as a person who's in a position of success and people follow, I think, such an important thing. So when do you find that people, men in particular or women, find it hard to reach out in those kind of scenarios still? Or what would you say is the one thing you would advise people to do if they were in a position you were in back then? You know, when I when I the best thing you can do is talk and sometimes it doesn't matter who you're talking to, but because you're able to talk, it's, you're able to communicate the problem. And, and, and when you're talking about it, it's, it's easier. It's like two guys or two girls, you know, that uh, let's say you and I are married and um, you've cheated on me and I'm devastated. Well, I need to talk to someone about that. Maybe I talk to it, talk to my, my best friend about it. And, by talking to my best friend about it, it's not actually fixing the problem, but it's enabling there to be some form of channel, some avenue for, for that problem to be filtered through. And maybe that, that, that conversation, well, it's not maybe, it's a fact that, that conversation will be repeated over and over and over again to any, who any, anybody who wants to hear how horrible you were for cheating on me. But I think that enables people just to, to heal a bit and better than just sitting in silence because I think silence creates anger more and creates then rage. And that's when people get 
themselves into difficult positions by doing things that they really going to regret. So I think that, and there's too many examples of that to count, but uh, having the opportunity to talk and talk and talk, I think that, that, that slowly starts to empty a little bit. You know, you, you, what you're doing is trying to find answers by talking. You're trying to find answers. Why would she do such a thing to me? You know, why, why would she be like that? It's kind of like those questions and those answers. And then somebody's giving you a chance to think about the answers and somebody's giving you sometimes some examples of answers, but the, the fact that there's that communication is better. So you've got to talk, you know, and whether that's to your mum or your dad or to your best friend, I think you've just got to talk no matter what it is. And I think that way too many guys, I mean, the highest, I think the, the highest suicide age group is 45 to 50. And so in men, and I get that because you think about most guys, they, they, they go on in life with the old alpha male thing and they have these great ambitions about what they're going to be and what they're going to achieve and all that kind of stuff. And then they get into their mid forties and they're not where they thought they were going to be. And all of a sudden it's like, shit, I've just worked for the last 25 years and this is where I am. But then that's, that's abject failure. And so that place of abject failure leads people to deep depressions and because it's not like you can turn back the clock, you're not going to have time again. And people, when they get to their mid forties towards 50, they start thinking they're into the twilight years. Um, or if not the twilight years going over the middle aged hurdle. Um, <laughs> I know that I've got, I've got this kind and I've got another 35 years of hard work ahead of me, but, um, um, but I don't think all, all people think that. It's interesting you say that because as well, there's statistically in the UK, the biggest killer for men under 45 is still themselves above any cancer, diabetes, any disease, which is a really shocking statistic if you think about it. And I think it is a lot about being able to voice that it's okay to talk about whatever that thing is, the starting point instead of letting it get to the end, raising your own self-awareness in that process for understanding it. Interesting change of things, how it's starting to be more open, which is really really great in terms of mental health oh god any any man that's got a friend that you you even suspect just please even if it's a go for a pint go for a cup of tea go for a bacon sandwich go and sit in the go and get a sandwich go sit in the park on a park bench but try and give them a platform to talk try and try and encourage them to talk I have a friend of mine who I saw yesterday who lives in Canada and uh, he got married and split up with his partner after a few months and she became physically abusive after just a few months of being married together. And he's, he's not a, a big rough and tough guy, you know, he's a different type of character. And he's a lovely guy, super bright, super bright, lovely guy. But we're here a year later and he's, he still knows he's depressed and he's just trying to keep himself busy. And just by me, last night I, I met him, we had a coffee and there was an, an event I was going to and I was like, come to the event with me. And we came to the event and, he, and he, yeah, I could see it makes him feel better. It enables himself to cope in the moment much better than, than he does having to sit and remind himself of the depression. And I think in some cultures and some nationalities, so he's Bangladeshi originally but grew up in Canada, I think in some cultures and some nationalities, I don't think it's, you know, it, it, it's something that's as, as easy to do. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I, like I said to you before, I lost my dad and he was of the generation where it was the old generation where you literally shut up and get on with it in therapy is a complete load of shit. And, you know, it's just that whole mentality. And he lost all his financial success and business success in the last four years of his life, as well as my sister, his daughter. 
And I saw him deal with that in that way, tunnel vision of I can cope with this myself because I'm a man. And it ultimately led to depression and led to stress-related illness. So for me, seeing that firsthand, it's such a devastation on a family, just how shocking an effect like extreme stress or depression and not asking for help can have on the character that you once knew. And so it is such an important message what you say. If you know anyone that's a man who you think is struggling, just open up and provide a space for them to talk and ask them twice how they are because they're usually going to say that, okay, on the first time. It's an important thing. So thank you for saying that. So you said before you went to see Tony Robbins uh, as one of your coaching moments. I know that you have recently interviewed Tony Robbins as one of the only, well, the only person who was allowed to interview him when he was in Dubai. So that's a very wonderful experience. What would you say was your greatest takeaway from that meeting and conversation? Tony, Tony didn't say a whole load of stuff that um, I haven't heard before. He didn't say a whole load of stuff. He did say some things, but I think that the fact that he chose me meant that I felt, I felt special before he even turned up. And the fact that he was so bloody cool and <laughs> lovely and kind and generous and they say don't meet your heroes bullshit meet meet your heroes because he he was he surpassed so much i've got so much time for him i've read all his books i've done i've done nearly all of his courses i've you know in 1990 something i bought a six cd set stuck it in my car a DVD, a cd set stuck it in my car called get the edge and, and i listened to it over and over and over and over and over again and it took my success from uh, relatively okay to amazing and it was all because of those teachings. So I, I, I hold him accountable for a lot of the success that I've had. One thing was he, I, I think after the interview was probably one of the best moments because there are about 20 people in the studio and cameramen and sound and people just people just there because obviously they knew the studio usually has four people in but they knew tony was coming and so that everyone comes out the woodwork but he gave time and as much time as everyone wanted and needed to everybody it wasn't like he had a quick photo with people he just at one stage he sat i remember he just sat on the corner of the stage in the studio just sat on the floor on the corner of the stage on the step and sat there because he's such a big guy um and we just, we just all sat chatting and he was, you know, there was one girl there, Mace, a friend of mine. She's like, could you do a video for my fans, please? And he's like, yeah, sure. No problem at all. And she asked him a couple of questions straight onto her Instagram. Um, and I think that, I think he had fun because he wrote really nice words about us on social media as well, which was lovely of him to do so. And he also sent us a personal video just to say thank you. And, um, and that we're welcome to go attend any events that he wants to. And, uh, Hey, why don't we hook up for dinner or something when he's back in Dubai in March? And that was just like, that was for me a big moment you know there's another moment in my life where I, I got very emotional but that that was that was one of them yeah, that's amazing I think he is such a great connector and that's what he loves having human connection and actually being authentic and honest and kind to whoever he meets and you can really just feel that when he speaks there's people that poo-poo him and give it oh, bloody all this and a negative about it but it's it's so sad because you, there's so much you can gain from people. He hates people to suffer. He's done so much for people. He's just feeding millions of people, planting millions of trees. You know, Operation Underground Railroad, which is taking children out of sight, child sex, uh, sex slavery, um, 
for me, his commitment to that is huge. And obviously Russell Brunson as well is part of that. And I've got a lot of time for Russell. And so, yeah, he's, he's, he's just one hell of a guy. And, and I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you do, he is one hell of a guy. And uh, don't ever judge him until you spent a bit of time in his presence because he has, um, he has, um, he's, a, he's a force of nature is what he actually is. Yeah, his energy is just it's next level. He's a great motivator as well. You are a great motivator, sales strategy, etc. So what would you say is the driving force behind your own motivation and how do you motivate yourself on a bad day? I think, I think I'm, I'm clear, very, very goal-focused, very results-oriented, and I'm very, um, very much into analyzing actions and behaviors and, so, and task-driven. So I, I create a goal. I break it down into bite-sized chunks. I then break it down into daily tasks. And when I wake up every morning, I know what I have to do today to deal with my goal in a year's time. And so I, all I focus on is today. Um, I, know, I know I'm a better professional if I go to the gym early in the morning. So I rise at 4.30. I'm in the gym at 5. I train from 5 till 6. I know that I'm 20, 30, 40% even better with the gym than I am without it. Um, and... Although we have bad days, that that gym session. Oh, by the way, I hate the gym. Um, <laughs> I, lo- I love leaving the gym, but I hate the gym. Um, and so that gym session, I, go, I feel great as soon as I'm done, and I get out there and I, and, and I try and kick ass as much as I can. Yeah, I I remind myself why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, do I have bad days? Yes, of course I do. But I'm on a mission to teach the world to sell, and whilst I'm on that mission and I find people every day that don't know how to do it and they're experiencing extreme lows and, you know, almost becoming depressed because of their job. Um, and they don't know why, um, while there's people like that, like that out there, then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll don't, oh, I shouldn't even say this out loud. I, I, I do what I do for free. I love it. That's great. That's when you actually know you're living in your, your truth and your purpose. So what's your morning routine for you? Do you have one? Mm, yeah, I have this, 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 same thing every day. So I wake up 4.30, um, get up, go and bloom in, wash my face, clean my teeth, chuck my gym gear on, get in the car, drive to the gym, play some loud music on the way to the gym. Uh, if you go on Instagram stories, you'll see every day that I, there's, there's 15 seconds of some crappy music from the 1980s or 70s that's on the radio at that time of morning. Um, and I drive to the gym, five o'clock, my Jackson, my trainer trains with me in the gym, five till six, six fifteen back at the house. Um, what do I do? Shower, um, shower, smoothie. Um, so I have uh, what do I have? Almond milk, one banana, one some almond milk and a handful of strawberries um, into the thing, blend that up, eat my smoothie, or drink my smoothie, and then um I've then updated my social media by then in terms of going through the messages and all that shenanigans that I get across all the channels. And then I plan out what I'm going to, what I'm going to do myself on my stories for the day. Um, and generally my meetings start between eight and nine and, uh, I hop in the car and go to my first meetings and yeah, it's the same every day. Most evenings I'm not, I'm, what most people think is I'm quite an extroverted character. Um, but actually I'm not, I quite like my own company. Um, I I don't really have a need for for having people around me all the time. Um, my wife Anna is incredibly social, and so sometimes we um, 
<laughs> kind of disagree on you know because Thursday will come it's like dinner somewhere Friday dinner Saturday dinner you know this is she wants to go do stuff with people and she, she likes that kind of stuff so I wrestle with that myself <laughs> but um that's uh that's pretty much it. she's always right though because we meet really cool people if they're not already friends and before I meet them I'm not I don't want to go and meet anybody <laughs> <laughs> just want to sit home and read uh and then she makes me go out and no I, I don't I don't admit it until the next day but I had a nice time <laughs> <laughs> love that what's your main way to live a life outside of stress if you're someone who's extremely busy clearly so my happy place my stress-free environment is climbing mountains or I, mean, I love to climb mountains I love to hike um I love I love stuff that uh, that puts me at home with nature I'm a real outdoorsy person so here in Dubai I'll be wakeboarding I'll be hiking at the weekend I cycle a lot um, and so I live a stress-free life in those worlds completely because I don't when I'm doing when I'm cycling I cycle from London to Paris I'm just completely in that place I'm living in that moment every moment for those three or four days every weekend I wake up um, I go hiking or riding early in the morning. I go hike for sunrise and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, ne- I'm not anywhere. I'm just there. I'm in that place. And so that, that for me is kind of like my, my safe environment. Um, and I think that if you live in a stressed way where you have a lot of highs and lows or you, you, you feel under stress a lot of the time, you have to remove yourself, I think, physically from that place as well as emotionally. And so a great thing to do is to remove yourself physically and then go somewhere with somebody and listen to their problems. Yeah, I so believe that. Just I'm, getting I'm, your I'm, attention I'm, off you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm an epic counsellor of people's problems. I'm probably not, but I think I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I think I'm great. I invariably, I, I invariably think I'm giving pearls of wisdom and advice and support. So, but then you're lost in that place. You're not having to worry about you. Um, and then that, you know, it's, it's like anything, like you lost your dad, someone goes through a divorce. It, it, we know that that's never going to be forgotten, but we also know that time does, does actually make it more bearable. And yeah. Time does make it more tolerable. And so I believe that that, that time's really critical as well whatever whatever you know, losing a job um you know something negative happened to you it's just it's just you've got to be patient and give it time and at 49 years old i have the, the years of experience enough to know that um i don't think my two daughters probably would yeah that's interesting so when you say the biggest failure or loss and giving it time what's been so you mentioned the loss of your company would you say so that what happened was, so, so, so yeah, it, there were three things that happened over the course of three days. So I fell out with my chairman and in essence, I was fired. Let's call it that. And the following day, my, my partner left me. And the day after that, I got a phone call from my surgeon saying that the operation I'd had on my spine six months earlier had failed and I needed to have the operation again. And I'd been in, in agony for six months because of that. So three things came at me like a, a body blow all at the same time so that 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 has been the toughest environment I've ever lived through would you say so out of those three it could be all together but what was your loss or failure whatever way you saw it at that time that you were most ashamed of that you now see as your biggest teaching I was ashamed of what people might think of me 
um, I, I, I was responsible for the, the revenue of 60% of a, a company, a global company, and I had hundreds and hundreds of employees that looked up to me. And I went from hero to zero overnight. And um, I was then invited, Danielle, who's my business partner, I was invited to her wedding a few months later. And I, I, just, you know, I couldn't go to the wedding. I couldn't, I couldn't be around any of those people. I couldn't face anyone for months. Literally, I couldn't face anybody that knew me for months. There was no one. So that, that, that whole thing about talking, uh, I, I couldn't talk to anyone. There was no one that I could talk to that would understand because the people that would understand were still at the work um, or connected to it in some way. And so, yeah, that's why I urge people to talk because I, I felt I couldn't. So that, yeah, it was that really that, um, that was, was really what, what really kind of did it, that, that I felt like a failure. Now, when did it change? It didn't. Even though I started, well, I've got six companies now, six different businesses doing six different things. And even though I own the vast majority of each of those companies, even, even getting those going and getting those to be successful hasn't proven at all, um, hasn't proven to me that, that I'm, I, I've climbed back up from that place I think it was when I started getting comments on social media about the work that I do um that it, I started to get a little bit of relief um and knowing secretly that people that that and, and also the, the guy that the guy that plotted against me to get me fired in the company he got fired as well <laughs> that's when, drama I absolutely when when that happened I was just like I feel like I wanted to call him and just say um i didn't <laughs> so, I, what would you say <laughs> I really wanted to at the time how you doing dave all right mate anyway um and, but i think people started to notice me on social media and the work that i was doing i started to get lots of compliments from people and people that i thought didn't didn't give me the time of day and a lot of people would have given me the time of day and a lot of people would have stayed my friends but because i was so ashamed i hid and stayed out of their uh, radar on my radar um so yeah, I think that there was a, a, a big element of that, and I think that getting that getting out on social media four years ago, and then about two years ago, really trying to get get somewhere, um, people started to notice. They were like, "Man, that's really cool what you're doing. You're everywhere." And I'm starting to get a bit of what I think is respect again. And I, I'm not. I'm. I, some people might not want to hear this, but I'm not over it. I still I still miss it terribly. I, I miss it. It was my life. So uh, it, it gave me a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging. It gave me a sense of meaning. And and even though creating success was revenge, I still, I suppose it's people, people like, like people, guys that come out of the army. You know, you, you're part of a brotherhood in the army. And, you know, you're, you're the captain or the corporal or whatever, not corporal, but sergeant or whatever it might be. So you've got an element of rank and so you're senior. Um, and then you leave and all of a sudden you're on Civvy Street and no one gives two shits about you. And, you know, no one's going to, no one's got your back type yeah. of thing. Whereas, whereas you, I felt like in there, you know, although there was people trying to assassinate me all the time, the fact is I felt I was, I felt I belonged somewhere. I was part of a brotherhood of some sort. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. That's a vulnerable statement as well to say that you still feel that loss because I think it's so important that to share those kind of things that a loss can go on for years for people in all uh, yeah, I, there's even There's even days that, that I sometimes wonder what would happen. And uh, this, There was a guy that worked with me all those years ago and he was drunk one evening. Now, whether he was at home with his wife or whether he was sitting in a restaurant, I don't know. And he was like, me and this other person, you, you two were like, you were like the best thing that's ever happened to this industry, you two together. And it's not the same anymore, Spence, without you here. You really need to talk to each other. It's not the same. And I'm like, well, you know, if he ever calls me, I'll let you know, mate. I'm going to make sure he calls you. I'm like, don't, well, don't, don't go do it. But Spence, it was the best thing ever. And I've got all these messages. Now, and, I'm, and part of me wanted to really lean in and really communicate with him. But I just, I just like sat back and, and stayed out of the way and almost just like kind of like gave short re- responses you know, well, well, let's wait and see type of thing. But there was definitely in, in that moment of those messages going backwards and forwards, this real urge to think, I wonder if he would call me. If only he would. I wonder what life would be like. And it would almost be like, it's almost, it almost feels like it might have been resurrection. Mm. And you're the only person, like, period. You're the only person I've talked to about this in this way. Really? Wow. No one else on the planet. Not my wife, not your, your and our friend, Nick. No one. No, you're, no one has heard this. Well, I feel very honoured that you've been able to share it today. So thank you. I was going to ask you, as a successful man, it can be hard to be vulnerable. So what your greatest vulnerability was. But I think you've already covered that in your own way now. So I really appreciate that. So I will say mind and soul for me is such a big thing in dealing with stress and loss. What does spirituality personally mean to you? Because it can mean different things to everyone and everyone has their own take. But what would you say it means to you? I think as an arrogant, obnoxious 30-year-old, it meant nothing. I think I have have a client of mine um, who married a lady from Saudi Arabia and became a Muslim and then divorced the lady, but stayed a Muslim. And he told me about how it changed his life for the better. And it really hit a chord with me. And then I was at, so so some backstory, I come from a very religious family on my dad's side. My grandparents are missionaries um, in the second world war. And on my dad's side of the family, everyone was Sunday school, church, church, church. When I was a kid, I wasn't a fan of it, and my dad wasn't either. Um, my dad had had it rammed down his throat when he was a boy, and so my dad rebelled a bit against it. You know, just, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not a Christian anymore. And I don't think I had my dad pushing me. It was just around my grandmother and aunties and whatnot. So I have the Bible and religion and stuff, kind of like a lot of exposure to that when I was young. I was with somebody the other day that was telling me about his church and um, – a Nigerian guy who's been over here forever. And he told me what church he went to and he, he told me what, and I was like, okay. And then I'll join, it was a potential client. So I was, you know, playing the respectful, non-judgmental game in that moment. And, but the way he described it really resonated with me. And again, I don't talk about this because I don't talk about religion because I would say, if anything, I've always been atheist because I don't understand what an agnostic really is. That's kind of like, 
so that's that's like Bruce Jenner, isn't it? It's like, what are you? Uh, to me, it's like you're not one or the other. So I'm, I, I might be this, I might be that. I just refuse to answer. It's like it's like, <laughs> what religion are you? No comment. It's just, you know what I mean? it's just like, <laughs> it really it really resonated with me. It's just almost like you know, what this session, this this blooming thing's like a blooming therapy session. What's going on here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm sitting there and I'm on a, I'm on a podcast there in therapy anyway so <laughs> lay on the sofa well it's um, a free session <laughs> <laughs> and so it really resonated with me so when you talk about spirituality I don't think I don't think I, I, I really can grasp it with those words but have, have I opened my mind up to religion no matter how you want to describe it have I opened my mind up to thinking there's somebody else there that maybe is able to be comforting or is able to be um, fulfilling in some way or to or joyful in some way, then my mind is open now probably more than ever. And not that I'm sure anything will come of it, but that's my way of answering your question, I hope. Yeah, no, that's interesting because I always think um, spirituality obviously means so many different things, so many different people. For me, it's a deeper connection to your true self and whatever that is and a connection to something outside of you that's greater than you so being open to whatever that means for you and that could just be you know an emotion a kindness whatever it is but it's it's interesting you say that being open I think is a huge part of spirituality Mm. so what is one thing you would say people aren't doing that they should be doing in aspect of business and motivation and selling what is one thing you see people not really doing on a daily basis in multiple ways that you would suggest needs to happen. People are using the past to define their future. And it's a big problem because your past has no, if you let your past go, it has no power over your future. So people have to let their past go to, to make true progress um, rather than to be conditioned by it in a, in a potentially negative way. In terms of people becoming successful in business, the mis- biggest mistake I see people nowadays is that they don't understand social media. In the last 15 years, Facebook came along, and in the last 10 years, and predominantly last five years, everything related to business development has changed. And there are people still using the past and successes they had in the past and processes they used in the past in today's day and age and people are staring at their phones and they stare at their phones if if you flew into dubai and i picked you up from the airport and i drove you to the hotel the likelihood is you'd probably be looking at your phone in the passenger seat on the way to the hotel you wouldn't be looking at billboards on the side of the road. You'd be looking at your phone. Now, four out of five drivers in Dubai currently statistically use their phone when they drive. So that means I'll be on my phone as well while I'm driving statistically. So everyone's on their phone in the car. People are on their phone. I was today doing a training session and I'm like, guys, put your phones away. And they put their phones away. And yet they were still looking at their phones. No matter what happens, people are addicted to their phones. They're addicted to scrolling. They're addicted to messaging. They're, they're addicted. They don't even use their phones as a phone anymore. You know, it's just like when someone calls, it's a, it's a pain in the ass. So people really have to understand that social uh, media 
is first of all underpriced and secondly compared to other forms of media and secondly has the power to get your content and your knowledge and your experience into the hands of others in such a big way that um it's it's almost if you do it properly life-changing and the single most important thing to do yeah i have people saying i'm private um i can't make videos i can't make content i'm shy yet they're quite happy to hold the phone up do the whole you see the girls doing the peace and help with the cleavage show. <laughs> they're happy to do that and on on snapchat in a nightclub show their blooming body off show their thing going off but they can't make a video about their profession i find that insane and so my advice to everyone is over the last five years, I changed my approach. I accepted social media and I just, I lent into it. And now all of my clients approach me. I don't approach anybody. I don't spend a penny on ads. Um, people approach me and they've already made a decision to buy from me. When they contact me, they've already made that call. He's the guy for us. That's why we're calling him. I've also knew that by being an obsessive content creator, I was going to blow my competition into touch because none of them, None of them are even close to me in terms of content production. And, and that meant I had to invest in things that probably they're not investing in. I had to commit to things that maybe they're not committing to. But if you mention what I do for a living in this city, the only person or the first person that comes to mind is me. And I think that's where you have to be. You have to dominate your landscape and you have to make sure that you produce so much value for people that, that the, the only option is you. Yeah, I love that. I was thinking of that phrase yesterday about how no one is better at being you than you. So find out who you truly are and excel at it. And that's obviously what you do, which I think is amazing. It's been such a great conversation. So to finish, if you had to live into one intention or one mantra daily, what was that for you? I think the one thing you must say to yourself every day is, who are you kidding? (laughs) And because invariably it's you and the the second thing i will say is that you have to say to yourself and i do this quite often i look into them i go and stand in front of a mirror with a light on and i look deep into my pupils and i have a conversation with myself and if you're if you're in business and you're failing or you're not succeeding to the level that you want to succeed you need to go and stand in front of the mirror and look at yourself and just say to yourself grow the f up and mean it because I think when when you realize that you are the biggest hurdle to your success and the biggest conduit to your glory when you truly realize that then it's only then that you can take some action and just like the black and white movie where the hysterical woman's going ah and the movie star goes slaps her in the face she goes it's almost like you need a metaphorical uh, example of that yourself. You need to give yourself that to just wake you up and realize that you've got your head up your bum, get it out, okay, and get real. Because if you do get real, there's a huge opportunity for you to be incredibly successful and so easily to be connected to people where I never had that opportunity when I was young. We had a telephone directory and we had to go knock on doors to try and find people. Nowadays, they're all sitting on your lap, on your phone, and you can find them and they can find you. You just need to make sure you stop with the drama, grow the F up, okay, and take some action. I love that. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Spencer, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the session. 
Thank you for tuning into the Lawali Life podcast. If you are enjoying it, then please hit subscribe and download all the episodes so I can continue to bring you more amazing, inspirational guests from around the world and try to help you through your own stresses and losses. Stay tuned. <laughs>